You're listening to Data Plus Love. I'm Zach Batters. I'm here tonight with RJ Andrews, author and founder of the book Info We Trust and the organization with the same name. And this evening, we're going to talk about, among other things, his fresh Kickstarter, Infographic Visionaries. How are you doing this evening, RJ? Oh, it's been a it's been quite a week to orient listeners. We're on day four of this Kickstarter campaign. It's been a it's been a very busy four days. Well, it's looking pretty good. I checked it earlier today. I think you're about two thirds of the way there at this point. Is that about right? Yeah, I woke up this morning and we we're two thirds, exactly two thirds of the way there. So, uh, so that's really good for a 30, 30 some odd day campaign to be that far along in uh, only a few days. And I think you're two thirds with some significant backers with some of your higher end packages as well. Uh, yeah, we are offering bundles. So, um, nine books, 15 books, et cetera. And, uh, and people are buying the bundles. Uh, I didn't know if they would, what I've, what I've learned through this campaign is that, uh, most people can't use their company credit card to, to <laughs> back Kickstarter campaigns, which is, I, I mean, honestly, like kind of, kind of unfortunate because these, these bundles are really designed for sort of like teams uh, to, to, to go and learn together. Uh, so, so, but, that, but that's okay. There, there are, you know, again, let's focus on some people are buying these bundles. So that, 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 that's pretty neat. Uh, the whole, you know, the whole idea behind Kickstarter is, you know, you're taking a little bit of a leap, and you're you're hoping that you're hoping that the um, that the crowd part of the crowdfunding will 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 show up. And uh, and this week, the information graphics community you know showed up in a big way. Well, uh, trust me when I say I'll be asking Paul Chapman, my supervisor at JLL, if we can do that internally myself. But before we get too too deep into this, we should actually talk about what this Kickstarter is. So. Um, infographic visionaries is a set of three books, um, and you can choose to back all three or any individually, one of them, or obviously just make a donation to the project as well. But these are some significant names in sort of the history of data visualization, which I know is one of your big, um, inspirations. Whenever I see work from you, it's almost always, um, you know, sort of infographic history, at least when you're not doing something like really uh, pop culture like I, I associate you heavily with Jason Forrest in that regard, where I think of you as like two of the bigger names in sort of uh, preserving and unearthing this history of, of infographics and sort of bringing it to light because it's very easy for people to think that like in the modern age that, you know, we're the creators of this or, or that we're, you know, we're discovering these things for the first time. But so many of these ideas about data visualization and, you know, using pictographs essentially to convey data have been around exceedingly longer than we realize they've been here uh for a very long time and in fact a lot of the things that we're doing today um haven't really advanced the craft all that much you can look at all of our so-called best practices and find them documented you know a century or more ago and so what that does is is it creates some opportunities for us because we can look at the past for inspiration uh, uh, in, in inspiration across a variety of dimensions in like very technical, you know, sort of design flourish inspiration, like, oh, look how they made this bar chart element. Like, that's really interesting. I think I might use that, but also inspiration in a, in a more uh, squishy sense in that you can look at people figuring things out, solving information problems, and you can be inspired that they solved inspiration prob uh, information problems and we can solve in information problems as well. You know, we're part of a long tradition, a long tradition that goes back hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, you know, depending on how you how you slice it. I actually have on my desk right now, this is going to seem heretical, but I have Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, which is a, almost a sister document in many ways, because 
starting with the idea of pictographic visual storytelling, it starts off with hieroglyphs, essentially, where, mm. you know, we've got these two ends of the spectrum, you've got high resolution, realistic imagery, and then you have sort of iconic imagery, which is distilled down and simplified. Like if you think of a smiley face versus like an actual photograph of you. And in many ways, um, data storytelling is the same way. We've got different levels of sort of data visualization quality, not quality in terms of the data quality, but in terms of what you're choosing to represent. If you can't tell by listening to this, uh, RJ is brilliant. Um, I say that RJ is, is coming to us from Northwestern MIT, NASA and Bose before he, he has gone out on his, on his own to become like the godfather of data history. Um, but why did you choose the three particular subjects for your information graphic visionaries? Right. So we have, uh, you know, sort of a, di a diversity of characters here. We have a, um, we have a, an English uh, nurse who used um, not just data visualization, but data storytelling uh, to reform public health. Um, you know, she used data storytelling to persuade. We have an American educator, entrepreneur who uh, used uh, information graphics to help people navigate um, a time in America when technology was completely changing the pace of society, technology like uh, canals and then the steam engine and finally the telegraph. And then we also have a French scientist, a French scientist who used um, his own inventions to better uh, understand the science of motion and uh, these three people's stories are, um, they have not been told and not been recognized in the way they deserve. In fact, I believe that they, you know, amongst many, many dozens and dozens of uh, stories from the history, history of information graphics, these three character stories uh, demanded to be told uh, the most. And so that, that's, that's why we're starting with them. So is your hopes that this will be an ongoing, that you'll have uh, other future subjects in the works as well? That's certainly uh, the aspiration. We've identified a couple dozen uh, volumes for the series and have a, a loose roadmap. But uh, honestly, all of our, all of our effort has, has been pumped into making these three titles uh, really beautiful, really complete in, in the sense that we are not only uh, developing all kinds of new research, but also uh, have established complete visual catalogs, you know, catalog raisonné for, for these creators. Uh, it, it's, it's been years of effort just working on these three. Uh, and if, you know, this continues to be successful and if, if there is a demand for more, then yes, we're going to, we're going to keep marching. I feel like I could be really mean right here. And if I were to ask you like to murder your darlings, if, if someone only has, you know, the funds right now to chip in on one of these, like if, if they really want to get in on this, they really want to dip their toes and sort of uh, learn more about one of these historical figures. Do you have one that you would recommend in particular, or is that more of the subject matter? I, I think that if you, I think it depends a little bit on who you are. So because these are a diversity of characters. And so there's a diversity of uh, industries or sort of topical areas that these people come from. So if you're really interested in healthcare, if you're really interested in public policy, if you're really interested in how to persuade and sway, sway uh, opinions, not only with data graphics, but with the uh, written text descriptions that ride along with data graphics, then, then you want Florence Nightingale, uh, absolutely.
Um, the pitch for Emma Willard is a little bit different. Uh, if you're really interested in the history of America, if you are really interested in uh, absolutely spectacular design productions, I mean, print artifacts that are more beautiful than anything we're capable of producing today, then you want Emma Willard. Um, she also has, I think, the most insane graphics of the three three books. Her time temples. Uh, I, I've I've tried to. I mean, honestly, I've I've tried to reproduce them and to make my own and adopt her her work, and I it, I, I can't pull it off. Like it's 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 crazy what she's what she accomplished. And so, if you want more of like a way out there design world, and 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 also a little bit more tied to history. Um, and the story of America, then, then, then I would select Emma Willard. And then Marais is a little bit more technical and it's a little bit more wonky. Quite honestly, we chose Marais. That was sort of the one for us, meaning that's the one for the real data viz super nerd. Uh, Marais writes the first book, which includes the first real elaborate history of data visualization. And he says, this is, this is how we got it. This is why it's so great. This is how it's going to change the world. And he's writing this at a time when he doesn't have any vocabulary to describe it. There's no established words. Um, and so what's beautiful about his writing is he has this poetic language to describe data visualization. Uh, and so I think that if you're really into data visualization and you're a practitioner, that uh, and, and, and maybe also if you have a science angle, like a hard science angle, then, then Murray might be the one for you. I, I'm, it's fascinating to hear sort of your perspectives on these various uh, figures. Were any of these figures existing like contemporaneously in time, like they would have been each other's contemporaries or were they all sort of uh, displaced in time at different points or wouldn't have known about each other? So I think they would have known about each other. Um, certainly Willard should have known about Nightingale because Nightingale was a celebrity in her, in her own time. And while Willard was still alive. So I, I expect that Willard, that Nightingale was on her radar. But in terms of when these people peaked graphically, they're they're separated by a number of decades. So so they did their lives did overlap, but Willard, uh, you know, Willard has her story and this book spans from the early 1820s all the way through the 1850s. So we're talking about three decades here, but you know, you, you might say that she peaked in 1846 with the Temple of Time. Whereas all of the Nightingale graphics uh, occur during the late 1850s. So it's, you know, more than a decade later. And then Marais' book comes out 1878. And the second edition is in 1885. So there is some temporal distance between these people, but, but their, lives, their, their lives did overlap. So I have some thoughts on this. Mostly when I think of historical data viz, I think of what has become the most popularized form of that, which is basically Edward Tufting promoting uh, Minard's March, uh, which is the Napoleonic, uh, you know, march into Russia and the, you know, the line returning back as well, which has sort of become uh, popularly maybe the most uh, famous historical data viz. Um, in terms of, uh, I guess, uh, quality and topic, where do you find these, like these historical documents? So you've been, you know, researching and discovering uh, documents based on these to get them the book, getting high quality copies of them and that sort of thing. Where do you even um, find these kinds of things and how do you conduct that sort of research? It's a real treasure hunt. Uh, and so you have to start somewhere and then you, uh, like 
it's it's the same thing as trying like trying to establish a data set where you're trying to get some sort of holistic picture of what the heck's going on. Uh, I think historians do have, uh, uh, they're, they're chasing after a very uh, similar process where they're trying to get a complete picture. What am I missing? Where are the holes? How do we plug the holes? You read, um, you read secondary sources and then you read a lot of primary sources trying to identify uh, the bridges that will lead you to the next, to the next document. And so that's what we've done with all of these people. And, and very specifically, Susan Shulton, who's uh, authoring the uh, Emma Willard book, and she and I built a shared spreadsheet and we wrote down everything we could about what Emma Willard did. And we've been tinkering and filling up that spreadsheet for, for a long time now. And not only she made this textbook, but she made this textbook in all of these years. And there's you know 32 editions of this textbook. And these are all the different rare collections that hold it, who we might go and, and ask. And we're looking at all the editions. And this is when she changed this graphic from this, this original version to this variant. And this is what we can learn by the change in that year for, for, you know, from, from one variant to another. So, I mean, it's a very painstaking, detailed process, but it's, it's, it doesn't feel painstaking. It's, it feels like a treasure hunt. It feels really fun. It feels like you're finally bringing a little bit of order to uh, to this this topic that maybe has never been there before. I mean, in many ways, following you on social media feels like you're the Indiana Jones of data viz because you're constantly doing unboxings of historical, you know, data viz uh, books and and just various topics that you've, you know, bought and purchased and found. Um, in terms of where these data viz originally existed, where were these being printed? Were they in newspapers? Were they writing books? Uh, where were they putting these out into the world? I mean, nowadays, obviously, we all have a digital presence, and it's very easy to create something and get it in front of people. Uh, how were they producing these back then? Like, what kind of media were they using to create them in the first place? But then how were they distributing them? So there's a... Uh, a printing technology revolution that happens across the 1800s and you move and, and that and that printing technology revolution is is i think lithography um so I'm, I'm not i'm not an expert of the history of printing but the the basic idea is that past printing mecha, uh, method so you think of like a wood block you have like a raised surface that receives the ink you know like a stamp right and and so that's one and then you also have engraving and engraving is very useful because you can make very, very fine lines because you're etching into metal. Um, and basically that's the opposite principle. Instead of a raised surface, you, you engrave in and there's a, there's, a, there's a well, a cavity that the ink goes into that's holding the ink and then that, that's how that's printed. But the problem is that both of those things are mechanical. It's either the surface is raised or the surface is depressed of the printing plate. And because it's mechanical, it wears down. You can only print so many, right? Okay. So lithography operates um, not on a mechanical process, but on a chemical process, uh, particularly a similar uh, chemical process as the, what separates oil and water, right? Oil and water don't, don't mix. And so you can treat um, a lithographic plate, which is usually a very fine uh, stone, and you can treat it chemically so that only portions of the very smooth surface uh, will receive the ink because it's been treated chemically. And the nice thing about that is you can do it over and over and over again 
and there's no mechanical surface that's wearing away. Does that make sense? So that's that's kind of like the technological revolution that's powering not only information graphics, it's powering uh, geographic maps, it's powering new, um, newspaper, um, it's powering, um, well, newspapers are still in metal type. I don't know when newspapers switch over to lithography, actually. But the, the point is that there's a democratization of print culture, and it sort of soars to incredible heights. You know, we might think of like the poster culture of 1890s Paris. And so information graphics is sort of along for the ride, where you start in the early 1800s with some very beautiful engravings. And we might think of some of like William Playfair's charts with some very, very fine lines. Um, if they're colored, then they're being colored by hand. Uh, what are these? Like they're often foldouts in books. Maybe they're sold separately as, um, as plates and maybe you can buy the plate separately and then ask the binder to bind them into the book. Uh, so they're sort of like maybe narrow, you know, field of options, but there are examples of posters too. So these posters aren't, aren't always rolled up. They're often folded into like little folios. And so most famously, we might think of Joseph Priestley's um, timelines from the 17, 1760s. Okay, so that's where we start. And then by the end, you know, you sort of have all kinds of crazy things. You have all kinds of crazy foldouts. You have huge atlases, you know, books that are bigger than anything that are really produced today. You have uh, beautiful color books. Uh, that, that there's, there's, there's an explosion and experimentation of all kinds of different forms because, because you could. It's not like today where everything has to be the exact same form. It has to be, you know, everything has to be a square for Instagram or it has to be this particular like 16 by nine uh, landscape image for Twitter. You know, there's just an, an, a much, much more uh, flexibility in terms of canvas size. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. That's, I mean, that sounds a lot more liberating in terms of you're only bound by your creativity and the limitations of the data. Yeah. I mean, it's still expensive, but despite that expense, there, there was quite a lot of variety. Uh, I know listeners can't see this, but you might be able to see this over my shoulder is that, you know, I, these books aren't exactly in chronological order, but Behind me is a bookshelf with, I don't know, several hundred books on data visualization going all the way back to Priestley in the 1760s. And, you know, if I look at the earlier books, there's just an enormous amount of variety, you know, in terms of the trim size of the book, how, how, how tall and wide the books are, how thin or thick they are. And we get, we, we arrive at the books, you know, that have been published in the last decade, you know, books published by all of our uh, all of our colleagues, and you know, they're all pretty much the same. And you know, that doesn't mean that they're bad books. That's not a reflection on the author, or the creator. It's a reflection on our on our information culture, right? So, in terms of that, do you think that information culture was sort of more vibrant back then because it was more segmented and people had more unique perspectives? Like, have we become too incestuous, where everyone is reading each other's stuff and is sort of forming the same opinions, or is it just that maybe it was not newer back then, but maybe um, less uh, indoctrinated. Uh, I don't think we're. I, I don't think they were any less incestuous than we are. I mean, I, I, I think they were hyper connected, and they knew what was going on in the same way that that we do. Uh, I, I don't think that the pace of the pace of their um, the pace of their 
informing of one another was was any different and i think that they're riffing on other uh, on each other you know just like we do um so i don't i I don't i don't think it's i don't think it's that um why is it different i i think it's because we are on the early rungs of a new ladder you know we are still on the bottom rungs of a new ladder we're we're figuring out digital culture and um, you know it's and it's a little bumpy, it's a little crazy, it's it's a little exciting, um, you know, which is sort of I, I don't think we should expect anything different. I think one of the unique things that digital culture that opens up to us that was more difficult but not impossible in previous versions is interactivity. Um, in a printed version of something, obviously you cracked this with your uh, previous Kickstarter, which was cross sections through California, which was your. ISO-type map where you were able to fold it different ways to experience California in different ways and see different Mm. portions of it, you were able to create interactivity with what is a paper document. People would argue to you that print things are by nature not interactive. I mean, I I would probably argue against that in the first place because the reader is always a collaborator in creation. So by having a party observing something, you're already adding something to it. But I mean, with um with the advent of sort of digital technology and being able to create data visualizations that way, obviously we're able to create maybe more um deeper experience. I don't mean deeper as as richer, but deeper as in, you know, not just um length and width, but adding depth to the experience as well. Like an example might be um you had uh your Apollo 11 50th anniversary visualization, which uh Neil and Buzz go for a walk which was a uh, scrolly telling is a very popular technique uh, with a lot of digital visualization practitioners who's making very tall things that just keep going down and keep delivering yep. more stuff. What you did was your page stays in one place, but much like a chat thread, you know, you're scrolling through what was actually being transcribed from Neil and Buzz talking. And then on the bottom of the page, you had their little figures moving back and forth on the surface of the moon. So you created scrolly telling without actually having the, the page move. It's just the text moved on the page. And I mean, that, that is something you could do on paper. It'd be like a very long scroll, but it's, it was a unique experience that you were able to deliver interactively through a Mm -hmm. digital means. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so uh, static artifacts are, are definitely interactive. Um, You zoom in with your eye, you unfold things, you rotate the page. Uh, It's just a slightly different type of interactivity you know, with, with, with analog, with, with print culture, you uh, are able to produce uh, insanely more uh, higher resolution information. Um, you just can't do very high resolution on in digital. And so, uh, so, so yes, so uh, print culture is interactive and um, but it's interactive in different ways. In digital, we have, you know, you can interact with the story, which really you can control the reader's eye through the story, through that scrolly telling that you mentioned. The other way that it's interactive is that you can really interact with the data. I mean, you can, you can really go deeper, uh, you know, through all kinds of interactive uh, actions like hovering and clicking and, and that sort of thing. But I, I find a lot of those, you know, and, and maybe also personalization, right? So you can, you, you know, the, the sniffer can say, oh, they're in this zip code. So we're going to, we're going to skew the story, you know, to, uh, for them. Um, and that's all great. I love, I, I love all that stuff. Um, but, you know, it, it's all interactive, right? The story doesn't come to life on its own. The story comes to life in the mind of the reader. Like, inter, it, like we need, we need some interaction. We need somebody to read the thing for it to work. 
Yeah, I heard that concept expressed as uh, the word closure in the sense that um, the reader being the ultimate collaborator, like if I show you half my face in shadow, I don't need to tell you that I have a full face there. You're, you have enough prior experience to interpret what a human face looks like. And in the same way, by what we present to people, they're forming connections based on how things are displayed on the page or prior knowledge or, or that sort of thing as well. Yes. Yes. Good. So let me ask you this. Um, we're talking about the sort of explosion of data visualization in the past and sort of how is this wild, exciting time of all these different types of stuff coming out. Um, in terms of the modern age of data visualization, is is data as a um, visual data as a means of communication less now than it was then? I mean, is it falling out of favor? I mean, right now, if I were to say what the most impactful data visualization of the modern age, which whatever we choose that to be, I'd probably say the whole idea of like flatten the curve, like at least for the current age, right? As long as we're still sort of experiencing yeah. COVID lockdowns, like in terms of a data point, that seems like one of the big things right now. Like what, what do you think's going on? Yeah, I mean, flatten the curve is, it's a diagram, right? It's a concept. It's a visual idea. And that's how it started. But then we actually saw the curves. Like we, we experienced them, right? And so it was interesting that we're sort of preloaded with this direction on what we wanted the curve to do um, before the curve really materialized. And then, of course, we've been watching the actual curves for, for over a year now. But the, the, like the concept, the meme of flatten or bend or, you know, whatever we're going to do to this, this godforsaken curve, um, like that was established very, very early. And it was established, you know, without data, it was established as kind of a visual concept. And so that's, that's really kind of nifty, that interaction between the visual idea and, and you know, and, and then, and then the, 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 actual, the actual data coming in. And, and that's certainly the most, I think, yeah, I think that's the most salient, salient re recent example. So in terms of where things going next, you said you think we're at the beginning of something new. Um, do you, are you, are you going to like Babe Ruth this and call your shot about what you think's coming next? Or are you just like an excited um, participant along for the ride? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, what am I excited about? I don't know. Like I have this, I have this like presentation that I pull out sometimes which has like 200 different bar charts that that are like totally weird and totally different than than the way we make bar charts today and i i think i i don't think this is going to like be earth-shaking or like change society necessarily like in a huge way but like i kind of want to get back to a place where like we can make more weird bar charts like just like play with the primitives and have a lot more freedom because because really in society like we, we love xenographs you know these these like weird chart forms that are very custom and tailored to a particular data set often um but you know a lot of society just kind of operates on like line charts bar charts pie charts circles on a map full stop you know, like you don't even get a scatter plot like it's just those it's just those four and so i think that there's a big opportunity to not actually make xenographs, but actually to go really, really like insanely detailed and, ins and, and become insane craftspeople and in how we make like the basic charts. Because I, I think that actually like most of the time that you see the basic charts are like actually not, they're not fully, fully executed because it's so easy to just rip them off. Right. Like, 
um, that I, I actually I think we can take take a closer look at them very often. So you're you're uh, there's an Anthony Bourdain approach to charts essentially where we want to go for the peasant food version where you're having the elevated version of the bar chart where like let's nail this bar chart to such a degree like let's remove the extraneous let's take off some of the cognitive load let's get some of the extra stuff off here that's not needed distill it down to the best version of this and put that up there. Yeah, I mean, like one way of saying it is like, how long did you spend working on your baseline? And like, most people don't spend any time working on their baseline because they don't have to. But actually, like you can, you can accomplish quite a lot from a, like, from a storytelling perspective with, with how, you, how you do your baseline. Um, and so I, I kind of want us to just like, yeah, there, there's a deconstruction portion of this. Um, and, and like how many software libraries, like, or, 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 or tools, like let you, let you like choose from, you know, 40 different types of approaches to, to baselines. And like, they, they don't let you do that because there's no reason for them to let you do that. I mean, that's kind of like an insane detail, but I think that if you like, that's just like a whole nother way of taking the, the field where we're going to actually be really, really particular uh, about even even the fundamentals. Uh, so yeah, I like I, I I don't I don't know what like the the iconic Anthony Bourdain, like you know I'm going to make the best fried chicken sandwich ever or like what the what the basic food thing is. Do, what, what 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 would that be? What yeah, his whole thing was he he was into the idea of what he called peasant food, which is food with like five ingredients or less. Like he obviously he enjoyed hot cuisine and going to like mm. the, the higher end establishments, but to him, yeah. some of the food that he enjoyed the most was something made in someone's grandmother's kitchen. That was like a very simplified stripped down recipe, but executed well. Yeah. I like, I like that a lot. And I think, I don't know, maybe it's because the weekend when we're recording this, but I'm thinking, you know, maybe tomorrow morning, I'm going to cook some pancakes. Right. And so like, that's pretty simple, but it's like, I'm going to, or a grilled cheese sandwich, right? Even more simple, like very, very few ingredients, but like, we all know that a, like a perfectly executed grilled cheese sandwich, like there's almost nothing better. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I'm kind of excited about, about making our, the version of our grilled cheese sandwiches, which is like, you know, bar charts and pie charts, like just like elevating the bar chart to an art form. I'm, I'm right there with you. And I appreciate both ends of what you're talking about, because, you know, taking the bar chart and elevating the bar chart, like the non-exotic traditional bar chart, you know, we're talking like almost like with the craft single in the middle bar chart mm. versus the yeah. exotic bar chart that we're talking about, which honestly, many of these early practitioners probably had a lot easier time making than we do now, like with our software tools, like I'm primarily a Tableau guy. There's lots of different tools out there, but like mm -hmm. to use many of them to create something outside of the box, especially yes. and make it work, you're having to become a hacker in order to execute this. Yeah. When really back then, you know, they had slide rules and various tools for measuring and were, you know, drawing many of this with a, a pen on paper to, to execute, which is probably easier than what we do. Yeah, their, their, their creative freedom was less limited. I mean, what we can do is we can we can run very, very quickly in very, very particular directions. Um, but if we try to do anything different, it becomes very, very expensive. Uh, whereas they, it was very hard to scale. It was hard to go places fast. It's you know, almost you know, near impossible to work with data at scale. But what they could do 
is uh, when they were, you know, figuring out the concept, they're working with paper and pencil and the limit was their imagination. I don't think I have anything more to add to this conversation, RJ. So I'm just going to say thank you for coming. Is there anything you'd like to shout out tonight? I know we've got the Kickstarter information graphic visionaries that we'd like to promote. What else is going on that you'd like to talk about? Oh, my goodness. I mean, this has this has absolutely uh, swallowed up my life producing these books. And I I expect it to for a while. Um, But, you know, beyond beyond seeing them on Kickstarter, I think that well, I think that you I, I want you to go to Kickstarter just to see the film. Because we have a we have a ninety second short film, and the film really elevates information graphics uh, in the way that I believe believe they deserve. You know, we 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 really put pure science. We hold pure science in a very high cultural status, and we hold pure art. You know, think of E equals M C squared or the Mona Lisa, right? We we hold both of those in, in insanely high cultural status. Um, information graphics, which, you know, really marries the two, you know, hasn't achieved the same peak. Uh, and, and I believe that we all have a responsibility as stewards of this craft, you know, people carrying the torch forward to, to help elevate it. And, um, so I think that like this 92nd film is something that, that, uh, that, that strives to do that, that you'll really enjoy. Check the show notes for the film. We'll be including it here as well as links to some of RJ's other stuff. RJ, thanks a lot for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Data Plus Love is recorded and produced by Zach Bowders. Our music track is We Are Legends by Alex Stoner. Hey, you're still here. Um, you're probably waiting for like the next podcast uh, to kick in, probably something better. Um, thanks for hanging on. Anyway, if you're picking up what we're putting down, uh, consider buying us a cup of coffee on ko-fi.com slash D-A-T-A-P-L-U-S-L-O-V-E. Um, just, you know, drop $3 in our tip bucket. It helps us buy better equipment. It helps us uh, pay for razor blades to keep me from looking like a wolf man. And it keeps uh, Mark's head looking so shiny and beautiful. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll never put anything behind a paywall. And thanks for your patronage. Have a great day. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really appreciate you listening to the Data Plus Love podcast. If you'd like to see more about what we're up to with the show, go to anchor.fm slash data plus love. Just spell it out, not a literal plus sign. Here you'll be able to see our library of episodes as well as interact with them either through polls or comments or leave a voicemail message that I'll put on an episode. You can interact with me personally by joining me on Twitter. I'm at Zach Bowders, not hard to hunt down. And if you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a tip for us or signing up for a small monthly donation at our ko-fi.com slash data plus love. Buying a cup of coffee for the show is just $3 and you can get more if you choose or sign up to give that $3 or more monthly. Either way, I really appreciate it. Lastly, if you'd like to see more of my public data viz work, check me out on Tableau Public. So go to public.tableau.com and search for Zach Bowders. I'm the only one you won't have trouble finding me. I promise. So thanks again for hanging on to the end of the show. I really appreciate all of your listens. And until next time, this has been Zach Bowders for the Data Plus Love Network. 